Well, I'm saying this not because he's here today. It just worked out that way. But my dad is a man of many gifts and talents. I did write this before I knew he was coming, so. Uh, he has been a, uh, a pastor uh, for uh, more than 40 years, just recently retired from full-time ministry, which allows him to be here today. Uh, but also for my entire life, he has had this hobby of classic car restoration. Um, it's just been a huge part of his life. I've watched him do, I, I can't tell you how many cars have come through our driveway and garage over the years. And it's something he seems to get better and better at. Some started like that, of course. Right? And like anything, um, any hobby or any subject, there are levels of things, right? There are levels of car restoration. The, fir the first level is something a little bit better than this, but something they call driving condition, right? Pretty much what you think. It's not really good to look at, but it works, right? It runs. Um, the second level is what they call street show condition. Maybe you take it to a little uh, show in town, or maybe you have that neighbor who's got a uh, a nice car that he keeps in the driveway that he likes a lot. This is uh, one of my dad's cars, a 57 Ford that would kind of qualify for that. It's great. It looks good. It needs some work, right? The third level of restoration is what they call show car. This is the next step, right? This is a 1966 Oldsmobile Toronado. And my dad, I'm sure, is already thinking, why are you using these pictures? I've got so much better pictures than this. I know he's thinking that. These are the ones I took, so. Um, but this is a, that next level. It's beautiful, right? It's holding its value. It's going to increase in value. They're fun, right? And then there's this fourth level of restoration, and I don't have a picture of that, but what they call concourse restoration, meaning it's been completely restored back to original factory condition. It's a collector's item. It's growing in value. It is a prized possession, right? They're often rare. And now I know some of you may be thinking about people that you know that have some of these cars and they may think that they're street show cars when really they're just driving condition cars or maybe you've got one of those cars that's just been in your garage for years and years and years and years and you think, well, wouldn't it be nice to do something about that one day? Right, hopefully you don't have that in your garage right now. But I think we love this idea of restoration, right? Because we love to see something that is in disrepair, made new again. I think that's why we like all these DIY shows on TV. We get to see something that's broken or doesn't look good, and we see it put back together again or completely made new, right? And we think, you know, I could do that. I'd like to be a part of that. And I think we like that because we kind of want the same thing for us, right? We're all in some stage of restoration, in some way, our different areas of our lives, we're hoping to see things that are in disrepair made new again. John Mellencamp, the famous rock star who's now 65 years old, uh, reflected recently on what's left for him in life. He said this, he said, I intend to make my ending good. I'm hoping it's one of those long, lingering deathbed conversions. A lot of people go, oh, I hope I just die quick, not me. I need time to put things right. In other words, some things need to be restored. Some things need to be fixed and made right before this is all over. Today, as we 
continue our series through the 40 days of prayer, this journey that we've been on as a church family, we're asking this very simple question. How do we pray for restoration? How do we pray for restoration in our personal lives, in our relationships, and in our world? How do we see ourselves renewed, things that are broken, put back together again and made new? Came across this very interesting article in the New York Times recently about uh, apartment buildings in the city that were uh, originally created for a different purpose. The Cherokee apartments opened in 1912 as the Shively Sanitary Tenements. The development was conceived by Dr. Henry Shively, the head of the tuberculosis clinic at Presbyterian Hospital. And they were designed for low-income tuberculosis patients and their families. The four buildings in the complex were designed to be filled with light and air, floor-to-ceiling windows, balconies, with open stairwells, all with this curative purpose. The article says that when this woman, Amber, took up residence at this former tuberculosis sanitarium on the Upper East Side, she didn't realize that this new home of hers would be such a restorative and healing place. She said, I was going through a divorce when I moved here. Maybe it's the light or the open courtyards. It just felt like a healing place for me. Her previous place, also on the Upper East Side and also on the first floor, was a dingy, depressing New York apartment. But when she entered the Cherokee, her feelings could not have been more different. I walked into the building, she said, and I thought, this is so amazing. It's a bit small, but the windows are so big, and there's this open courtyard. A place that was built for healing, turned into something else, remains this healing and restorative place and I think we all have I'm sure that you have a place in your life somewhere you go a home a destination right a little spot take a break in your day that is a healing place a restorative place for you I hope you have that this place the church is meant to be that for us that every Sunday when we come together we are meant to come to a place that heals us that restores us that makes us have that same sense of being renewed in our life and prayer prayer is also that place where we experience restoration where we come to God where we have this communication with God where we can be restored and renewed I hope we'll see prayer that way and so today I briefly want us to see how we can pray for that how we pray for restoration um, and we want to do it in three ways the first is to see how we pray for restoration in our personal lives and I want to do this by looking at a passage of scripture that is very well known very well known I want us to look at Psalm 23 and as you hear these words would you just kind of let them sink in deeply um, into your heart this morning. The psalmist writes this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, 
goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those words are beautiful, aren't they? Timeless. Because they're true. But I want to point out a couple of things uh, about them. This psalm promises us that God will comfort us, that he will protect us, that he will provide for us. But what does it require? It requires that you and I see him as what? A shepherd. Our Lord and guide, the one who directs us. And the only way in prayer that we're going to see God as our shepherd is to admit that we are not in control. You cannot be in a controlling position with God. It doesn't work. And the promise is that when we let him lead us, when he is our shepherd, our souls will be restored. And that really is all-encompassing. That means our spiritual lives being restored. Sometimes that means our physical bodies being restored. Psychologically, our emotions being restored. It can be All of those things. God, you're leading this, not me. I'm not in control. And when we pray like that, when we say, God, I'm beat up, I'm tired, you have to lead me. I'm not in control of this. That's what the Lord is my shepherd means. And we let that really sink in. Even if you and I may be today in a very weary place, some of you, I know are dealing with incredible hardship, facing illness or disease. This is our prayer. Lord, would you lead and guide me as I go through this valley? And may I hold on to this belief that surely goodness and mercy are gonna follow after me. When I admit I'm not in control, that is what you promise to me, that my soul will be restored. That's what happens when we admit that we're not in control. And so we pray for restoration in our circumstances, but we also pray for restoration in our relationship with God. And to do that, we have to embrace humility. We have to embrace humility. In another well-known psalm in the Old Testament, King David, who is the mighty king of Israel, the one who uh, conquered Goliath, um, the one who God said was a man after my own heart, In Psalm 51, he recounts for us the greatest sin of his life, a horrific situation. And yet here we see David responding to it by embracing humility, coming before God and owning it. Look at these verses from Psalm 51. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see what David is concerned about? He's concerned about his relationship with God, his closeness with God. What sin has done in his life, in his relationship with God, he calls out and asks for God to renew his relationship, to restore it to the joy that it once had. In David's story, is the human story. It's your story and mine as well with the reality that sin has this way of coming into our lives and severing, of hurting this relationship that we have with God. 
That's what happened when Adam and Eve fell and sin came into the world. It severed this relationship with God that we were meant to have and from then on drifted us apart from him and from one another. And that sin, if God is holy, if he's to remain holy, that sin has to be punished if we're ever to have the relationship with God we were meant to have. That's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is that he has done something about it for us. And that's what David is beginning to think about and calling out for, right? That God came to us in Jesus. That he sent his son to us to live the perfect life, to show us what we were meant to be and have with God. And by doing that, he became the perfect sacrifice so that he could be punished for our sin in our place on the cross. And what the resurrection of Jesus means, when he raises himself to new life, it means that you and I now can be fully restored back to God. We can now have the relationship with God that we were meant to have. That's why the resurrection is so important, right? And so the good news of the gospel is a story of restoration. And there are times in your life and in mine when our prayer is going to need to be, God, I have sinned, I have wronged you, would you create in me a new heart? Would you restore me back to what I know is true, that I am deeply, deeply loved by you? And may I turn to new life, to a better way. That's what we pray for in our personal life, right? We pray for that kind of admission of not being in control and we pray to embrace humility. But all of that leads us, hopefully, to a place of rest. Look at these famous words of Jesus in Matthew 11. All of that should lead us to rest in God because that's what Jesus says he wants for us. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't that sound like the good shepherd in Psalm 23? That sounds like his voice, doesn't it? And Jesus says, listen, when you follow me, when you admit that you're not in control of things, when I am leading and guiding you, when you recognize your sin, you confess it, and you return to me, rest is what awaits you. And this is a different kind of rest than sometimes the rest that we experience. Sometimes maybe we're fortunate enough to catch a really good night's sleep. We feel rested the next morning. Maybe we get that nice vacation finally and we do experience a a bit of rest and we feel restored on the other side of it for a time. But that all fades, right? What Jesus is talking about is something much deeper, much more lasting, much more deeply satisfying. Rest only found in Jesus. And so when we pray, if we're going to pray for restoration, that's what we pray for. We admit that we're not in control, we embrace humility before God, and then we rest in what he has done for us and what he gives to us. But secondly today, if we want to learn how to pray for restoration, we need to be thinking about, and this is so hard, we need to think about what restoration looks like in our relationships. How do we pray for restoration 
in our relationships. Look at 2 Corinthians 13 with me. This is the Apostle Paul um, ending his two letters to this uh, problematic church in the New Testament that had all kinds of issues, all kinds of um, problems. And this is the very end of his second letter to them. And he says this, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. So here's Paul giving his parting message to this group of Christians. Build each other up, he says. Aim for restoration. Do not tear each down. You are brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is what you are to be about. Pray for it. I was talking to John Levitt uh, Wednesday night after our 40 days of prayer small group and we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were uh, going through the portion of the Lord's Prayer where we were um, really struggling with this idea where where Jesus says we were to ask for forgiveness for our sins but then we are also required to forgive those who have sinned against us. And we're talking about how difficult that is and how we have to wrestle with that, what it means to truly forgive those who have hurt us. Incredibly difficult. And that's why it's so good to have things like small groups where we can get around tables and we can share the difficulty of that. We can share experiences and encourage each other. We need practices, things like that, that are going to foster reconciliation. They're going to move us and encourage us to do something about our relationships. And another one of those practices that we have here at BBCC is that once a month, the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion, the Lord's table. And we do that because Jesus commands us to do that, to remember him in that way. But we also do that because it is Perhaps the greatest way that we remind ourselves that we are to live in unity and peace with our brothers and sisters. There's a time that we give before each time of coming forward to communion to search our hearts and to find out if there's some relationship that we're at odds with that the scriptures would call us to do all that we can to make that right before we come to this table of unity and peace. We need, you and I need, these types of things They're going to lead us to restoration in our relationships. We need opportunities that are going to produce unity. That's what we want to be about here in our church. That's what the Christian church should be about. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to see more unity in our relationships, it's going to bring us to this very difficult um, task of forgiving those who have hurt us of having to pray for our enemies, those who have done harm to us. On Thursday afternoon, I went to a prayer vigil at Park Ridge Church, which is just across from Stoneman Douglas High School, across the Sawgrass. And with many people there, um, Pastor Eddie Bevel, who's the pastor of that church, 
um, prayed against evil in our world. And he took time in that prayer to pray for Nicholas Cruz. And I can't tell you how incredible that moment was to take time and say, this is, we are about something much bigger and deeper, though we feel hurt and though we are so demoralized by what has happened. It does not remove us from praying for those who have done us harm. Because look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing differently than others? This is the radical way of Jesus that brings us all to a place where we have to consider how are we, if we're gonna see restoration in our relationships, if we're gonna pray for restoration in our relationships, it's gonna bring us to pray for those who have hurt us, for our enemies. And that is hard, but it's what we pray for. It's what we long for. But finally this morning, we wanna see restoration and pray for restoration in our personal lives, we want to pray for restoration in our relationships, but, and this is so timely, we want to pray for restoration in our world, in our community. And I think there are two ways that we can do this, and the first one is for the here and now, and this is what Pastor Dudley talked about at the beginning of the service, of hearing this call that we have from God as God's people to humble ourselves and pray. Right? And by doing that, seeking his face, turning from our wicked ways, that he will hear from heaven and he will forgive sin and heal our land. That is our prayer. It's our prayer as the people of God that we take up so that we would see our world and our communities restored. That's hope for the here and now. That's the prayer that we should have on a week like this. But we also, I think, have something that gives us an even greater hope, something that we're moving towards. And it's this belief that we have in Christianity that we can believe in the restoration of ourselves because we believe that one day all creation will be restored. That's our hope. That everything will be made New. And I want to take you to that place in the scriptures that tell us that. The very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is our hope. And that should be our prayer. That is the future of the world. That is the future of our world. That one day Jesus is coming to make all things new. And if that is true, then it perfectly follows that you and I can experience restoration in our lives. No matter how broken, it can be put back together again. We can experience restoration in our relationships if Jesus is coming one day to make all things new. It can happen now if we pray for it. And so we pray like that. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and make all things new like you have promised. We've needed this vision this, vision, uh, this week. I've needed it. On Wednesday, uh, a shooter walked into Stoneman Douglas High School. And I'm sure some of you have heard the story of uh, Aaron Feiss, assistant coach, who reportedly uh, pushed students aside, shielded them, took bullets himself, and died. I was in the eighth grade with Aaron Feiss. I played soccer with Aaron Feiss. I got in trouble for talking too much in class with Aaron Feiss. And this week, hearing this news, it was like, and I haven't talked to Aaron in over 10 years, but hearing that news, it was like a door in my mind just opened up and all of these memories just came pouring out. And I remember things about him and then I heard this story and I just can't get over what has happened that he was there that he was in that situation I'm trying to think about what it, what he went through and what it was like and and then I think about how it makes perfect sense that that's what he did because he was a gentle giant he loved well and we'll miss him but it also reminds me that we long for a day when these things will be no more. And I don't know where you are with things that are happening in your life, but there are really hard things that we cannot explain. And what we are called to as followers of Jesus is not to try and spend all of our energy and emotion trying to figure them all out, but we are called to bring it all to God and let him begin the work of renewal and restoration in our lives. This week I've held on to the words of Kate Bowler, who's a theologian and is also living with stage four cancer. And she wrote this incredible article in Christianity Today a couple of weeks ago called God Came to Me in My Cancer. And I want to read a portion of it to you because I think it's helped me make sense of this past week and what our hope is as Christians. She said this, I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except I'm beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I see a middle-aged woman in the waiting room of the cancer clinic, her arms wrapped around the frail frame of her son. She squeezes him tightly, oblivious to the way he looks down at her sheepishly. He laughs after a minute, 
a hostage to her impervious love. Joy persists somehow, and I soak it in. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. What does it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream that says you are limitless? Everything is not possible. The mighty kingdom of God is not yet here. What if rich did not have to mean wealthy and whole did not have to mean healed? What if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. And after this week, the only thing we have that we can hold on to when our world is falling apart is that God is here, we are loved, and that is enough. It is enough because one day Jesus is coming again to make all things new. And it starts in your life, in mine, in our relationships, and we pray that for the world, that one day all things will be made beautiful, beautiful and new. Let's pray towards that end today. Father God, we come to you. Lord, on a day like today, we come uh, not knowing all the ways in which you are at work. And God, I know there are so many places in our life where we just can't seem at times to make sense of how you are at work. But God, we stand on the promise that you are here and that we're loved by you and that that's enough. And so would you help it to be enough for us? Lord, it doesn't mean that we don't have decisions to make and don't have things to think very deeply about. But God, would you remind us today that we are called to come to you in prayer, to be renewed, to be restored, that you would start the work in us as we look forward to a day that is coming when you will, when you will right every wrong, when death will be no more, and when you will make all things new. God, would you do that work in us starting today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.